Let us pray, guys. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for this day. Uh, Lord, again, we, we thank you for the mercy and the grace that you give us, that you show us. Lord, week in and week out, Lord, you, um, you always remain faithful to us. And we're grateful, Father, for the hope that you've given us, the hope of a Redeemer, the hope that um, even in light of our sin and our misery, Lord, you have uh, shed your light into this dark world. And uh, you've brought us in, Lord. You've drawn us near by the blood of the Lamb. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help us today to understand and to discern your word, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, today uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the doctrine of sin again. So I want to focus on uh, the doctrine of original sin. And uh, original sin is obviously... Uh, how we come to understand the way that sin is transmitted to the human race. And uh, original sin, uh, Wayne Grudem argues, is not the best term. And so he uses the word inherited, inherited sin, uh, because it speaks more of, a, of the transfer of sin to all of mankind. And uh, I think that's extremely important, uh, and it's important to understand that, we talked a little bit about the origin of sin, right? We talked about where sin comes from, and I want to revisit that quickly before we get into um, all of what I want to say about original sin. But just to talk about um, talk about the origin of sin, because we talked about sin originating um, in uh, ultimately in Satan, and the fact that the origin of sin is somewhat of a mystery. Um, but I think it's important for us to understand that uh, when we talk about the origin of sin, we have, to, we have to make sure that we understand that the Bible teaches that God is not the originator of sin. And so, for example, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, a great uh, passage of scripture that really helps us to see that. Deuteronomy 32 4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect. For all of his ways are just, a God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And so there, the idea that there is no injustice in God whatsoever. Um, also, because, you know, when you talk about the origin of sin, uh, there is one, there's a couple of factors, right? Um, we know that God is not the author of sin. But at the same time, we know that we cannot completely abdicate God with any type of relationship to sin in the sense of he has nothing to do with sin whatsoever. It's sort of, you know, here is God, uh, his control, his sphere of influence, and sin is out here somewhere as if God has no control and no influence, no relationship to sin. Uh, that would not be biblical either because it would almost present like a... A concept of um, let me do this uh, almost a concept of dualism, uh, which is obviously not what the Bible teaches. Dualism is not a biblical concept. It is not as if there is uh, God and some other unknown entity. Let's say sin. Um, let's say Satan or something like that, and that these things are running parallel to one another as parallel forces in the universe. This is more akin to Star Wars, right? The force, either good or bad, but it's not the Bible, right? So there is no dualism in Scripture. There is nothing running concurrently with God. 
uh, next to God, an equal force or entity power to God. And so uh, it's important because when we talk about the origin of sin, again, uh, the nature of the origin of sin being so mysterious, um, I know on college campuses, even this week, I got a question, this very question on college campuses in terms of the origin of sin. Where did sin come from? And so college students are smart. They want to know. You know, you have this whole Adam and Eve narrative, and what did God have to do with that? Is he the author of sin? Did he make them fall? Did they fall into sin because of his doing? You know, all of those things. So these are really relevant questions in our culture. And uh, But Scripture is very clear. For example, Job 34, verse 10, that uh, it is absolutely diamet diametrically impossible for God to sin. It says here, therefore, listen to me, you young men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness. This is Job 34.10. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. And so it is never right. I remember a popular apologist. Um, many of you have heard of Greg Bonson. Right? Well, Greg Bonson, in one of his lectures, um, uh, said, used the phrase that God is the author of sin. Now, what he meant by that is really not the way that he stated it. Uh, what he meant by that is exactly what all of the, the great confessions of the faith have always taught, and that is that uh, God has ordained, they use the word ordain, right? Or he has decreed, right? He has ordained or he has decreed that sin be in the world. So in other words, the Westminster Confession says, God ordains whatever comes to pass, whatsoever comes to pass. And, um, and I think that's right. I mean, this is what the sovereignty of God is all about. But by ordaining all things, he does not himself become the immediate agent through which sin comes. That's very important. Um, I think the best example of this, if you turn to Acts chapter 4 with me, okay, Acts chapter 4, uh, uh, almost an, an inescapable uh, reality that we have to come here to, but I think when we deal with, with the origin of sin, when we're dealing with the nature of sin, I think one of the things that we quickly come into contact with is the whole uh, issue of theodicy, theodicy, which is the, the, the problem, uh, as people want to talk about the problem of evil, but obviously you would see the word there, theos, right? So really it's evil in relationship to God. That's what theodicy is all about. How does evil relate to God? That's a bigger question. So I think Acts chapter 4 gives us a very good balance as far as, as far as exactly what we're saying here. God ordains, God decrees sin, that sin would come into the world, but he is not the direct agent through which sin comes. In other words, R.C. Sproul says, God does not create fresh evil in the heart of man. That's very important. Uh, so here, uh, beginning in um, verse 23, right, a very, uh, very familiar passage here in Acts. Um, uh, the uh, the apostles have been uh, have been threatened and they've been seized. They've been uh, they've been thrown into jail and they begin to petition the Lord. And it says here when they had heard the uh, 
heard that they've been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So this is when, you know, they told them, look, you cannot preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And then it says, and when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, oh, Lord, which that Greek word that's used there is really uh, sovereign. You know, some have translated it. It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of the of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a futile things, a futile thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Um, for truly in this city, and here we go, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose or your plan predestined to occur. And so predestination is obviously uh, where the term uh, decree or, or, or God ordaining something, that's where that comes from. And so this is the question we have to face, is what the people did, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, the Romans, what they did to Jesus, was it evil? Was it evil what they did to Jesus? Yes. yes. I mean, it's quite obvious, right? Of course. Of course it is evil. Even um, if you just look back uh, just uh, to chapter 3, um, you know, Peter uh, has already pointed this very thing out, right? In, uh, in, in chapter 3, uh, help me find it here. Um, he says... He says here, oh, is it, wait, is it chapter 2? Chapter 2, sorry, 23. Chapter 2, 23, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So there's maybe even a more succinct passage of scripture that captures what we're talking about. Right there, it says that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, uh, those are the things that God determined to happen beforehand. But how was he ultimately crucified or murdered? By the hands of godless men. And so God ordains the cross, but the secondary agent, and that is what, uh, uh, that, that's exactly the term that you'll find in a theology textbook or something like that. But we're talking about second causes, secondary causes. And so we know the book of Job. The book of Job ends with uh, the narrative saying that the family and the friends of Job came and surrounded him and comforted him. Why? Because of the evil that God had brought upon Job. Now we know how God brought about that adversity or that evil that was through the agent of secondary causes. He uses Satan. He uses bodily affliction. He uses catastrophe, calamity, right? But at the same time, all of it ordained by God. Any questions with that? Because I know this is kind of, it's like you walk in here and you get smacked with the odyssey. <laughs> so, yes, sir. I run into this quite a bit when, when witnessing, and, and I bring up the fact that God can use sin sinlessly. Right. And besides a simple 
a Christian understanding of what that means, how can we elaborate on that more, on why that does not indict God? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately that, rea that truth has to be held in tension. Um, it's just one of those things that Scripture teaches both, that God cannot be tempted with evil, James chapter 1. He doesn't tempt anybody with evil. However, he ordained the temptation of Christ. So there you have the tension. God ordained sure. the temptation of Christ, but we're told in James chapter 1, he does not tempt anyone. Yeah. You see? And so, um, again, this is why secondary causes are so important. You know, I think it was Stephen Sharnock who said that through the use of secondary causes, God removes himself from the maliciousness of the act itself. He removes himself from the evil that is enacted uh, in the actual act itself. So would a, would a good uh, story explanation of that point to the story of Joseph? Sure. Yeah, Joseph, Job, brothers. Jesus. I mean, I go, to, I go to Jesus because I think that's the highest well, point, yeah. right? And the greatest evil that's ever transpired in, in the face of the earth and in the history of humanity is not child molestation, it's not rape, it's not murder. It is the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. That's the worst evil that has ever transpired on the face of the earth. Greater than the Holocaust, greater than anything. Why? Because Jesus did not deserve to die. Jesus was sinless, spotless, holy. He was the blameless Lamb of God, and yet he was treated, you know, uh, you know, in the way that he was treated. He was crucified, murdered at the hands of godless men. And so I think that is, if we bring people to that, because I think people want to use human examples of of, of evil as the greatest examples of evil, right? And we have to bring them back to know, I think, you know, the Bible, this is what I love about Scripture, is that Scripture addresses the very, if you would, the very questions it raises. You know, Scripture addresses that. You know, it's like people say, well, you know, um, the Bible was written by man. You guys saw maybe that yeah. video clip, you know? It's like, yeah, but that's what the Bible says. <laughs> you know, it's not a problem for us. We're Christians. That's what the Bible teaches, you know? It's just like, well, you know, uh, you know, no, you know, what about the problem of evil? Well, you go to the Bible for the problem of evil to solve it, right? Don't go to philosophy, right? Don't go to, don't go to, uh, you know, don't go to something else. Don't go to pantheism or some other religion, right? Just stick. The Bible is a uh, self-contained, you know, it is a self-authenticating book. Uh, that's very important, guys. You know, because I'm very, very, I'm very cautious and very adamant about the necessity to use biblical vocabulary. Uh, I don't like any explanation of theology that doesn't use the vocabulary of the Bible. You know, I'm very careful about that. Well, I've noticed in a secular world how they try to accuse the Bible of being full of errors because it's written by men, but yet they depend on men's books today with philosophy and Darwinism, with evolution, with uh, Hindu, right. all written by man, so how is that any different is what I usually That's right. discuss with them. I usually yeah. get a you know, yeah. frustrated answer to that. But, and then to what, what uh, Rob said about witnessing that people got a good response about original sin or why God allows evil. You know, I, I have no problem just telling people, hey, I don't have all the answers. Yeah. It's beyond our, our comprehension sometimes to right. give these answers, uh, but by faith. Right. Uh, we, we accept it. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's some responsible ways that we can hold to that tension, right? Like I said, we can't come to the conclusion that God has nothing to do with evil or sin, because then that would infringe upon his sovereignty, 
right? At the same time, we cannot conclude that God is the author of sin. That would infringe upon his holiness. So we have to be careful to honor God and bring him glory, even the way that we answer that question, you know, because the last thing we want to do is act as if, well, as Christians, we don't have the answer to that. Therefore, you may want to look elsewhere for that answer, you know. That wouldn't be consistent, you know. So that wouldn't even be a consistent worldview if it can't account for something like that. Um, but there, you know, there are all sorts of passages. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says very plainly that God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. So that's just one, attri- one instance, of course. But again, it's just pointing to the moral impeccability of God. God cannot lie. He's not capable of immoral acts in any way. Um, uh, also, Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. You know, uh, There you have the answer to people who say, can God do anything? No, he can't do anything. He can't lie. <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, uh, is there a rock big enough that God can't lift it? You know, those kinds of nonsensical statements, you know. What they're asking is, can God violate his nature? And, of course, he cannot. Uh, God cannot do a lot of things. He can't sin. He can't can't cease to exist. Uh, What are some other things that God cannot do? Share his glory with another. He can't share his glory with another. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that that... that, uh, you know, really what we're trying to protect here is the perfections of God, the glory of God. Uh, again, the nature of God forbids that he is able to be sin's cause, uh, look, a primary cause. Look at uh, uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who, who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? So there, just the idea that God's very nature repulses evil, repulses evil, so that it's never acceptable in his sight. It is not something that he approves. It's not even something that he looks upon. Now, that's an interesting way of talking about it, that God is of pure eyes, uh, to look upon evil. And that's, you know, that's definitely a, a Jewish idiom for talking about that God cannot be in the presence of evil. He can't tolerate. It's, it's a way of saying God cannot tolerate evil. Um, his very nature is to be completely different than that. Psalm 5 is another important one. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Watch this. No evil dwells with you. I like that. No evil dwells with you. As soon as evil was found in Satan, uh, because he was so close to the presence of God, he had to be cast out because no evil can dwell with him. So the minute that Lucifer became the fallen reprobate angel, Satan, he was cast out immediately. And uh, that's amazing. And so we know that sin came into the world through or came into uh, the creation through Satan, right? Isaiah 14 talks about Satan being cast out. And I think there is an analogy there. Even though 
even though there is a uh, even though there's a, a an analogy to the king of Assyria or whatever, I think that that is going way beyond what a human king is capable of. The idea that he would ascend to the heights above, that he would be like the most high, that he was thrown down into the recesses of the pit, all these things, that he would ascend into heaven, all of these things, I think, historically have been looked upon as too severe to, 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 to be completely found or fulfilled in a man. And so, you know, Leupold and a lot of other expositors have pointed out, Dillich, Kyle and Dillich, their Old Testament commentaries, they point out that this was long held to be a reference to Satan. You know, and that there's an analogy here between any evil king, it's just pointing out the pride and the pomp, but that is what was found in Satan from the very beginning. Um, the same sin, we talked about this last time, but the same sin that Satan fell with is the same sin that he tempted man with. You will be like God. You will be like God. That is the analogy, or that is the... So, <clears throat> we saw that, um, you know, we saw kind of where sin comes from. It does not come from God. It originates in the heart of Satan. And why did sin originate in the heart of Satan? <laughs> this is a, I know this is a tough question, but uh, what, if any, answer can we give to that? Why is it that Satan's heart was filled with iniquity, pride? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. See, yeah, yeah. Because God decreed. Yeah, I think it has to do with the decrees of God. And what maybe what evidence of that do we have? Do we have a passage? I see that hand. I'll scratch my head. Right. I think there is one possible clue. You turn to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter five. First Timothy chapter five uses the same exact Greek word that is used for our election, right? for our election. And it's used to refer to the election now of angels. You see this? 1 Timothy 5.21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain principles without bias and exhorting Timothy to execute the ministry with faithfulness. But that phrase there, the elect angels, chosen angels, eclecte, that, that word that, that speaks of your election and mine in Christ is also used of the angels. So maybe one of the reasons why Satan fell, we can say conclusively, is because he was not elect. And that goes back to the sovereignty of God. That's amazing, right? We typically don't think of election with angels. Right? I mean, that's, uh, that's remarkable. But it, so it just shows how everything is under, overall, everything is under the sovereignty of God. Everything is subservient to that, uh, to that great reality. And um, uh, much of that becomes a mystery, of course, of how he separates himself from, from being the direct agent of sin. But Scripture says he is. And I like that because, I mean, you know, I like the fact that sometimes God doesn't reveal everything to us exhaustively. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord, right? But the things that he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are some secret things that are just not good for us to know. There's some aspects of knowledge, divine wisdom that we are just not capable of knowing, retaining. Um, 
probably because we can't handle it, number one, uh, and uh, because we're not capable of it, number two, we're, we're not omniscient. Even when we go to heaven, we're not going to become omniscient, folks. Right? Going to heaven doesn't make us divine. I think in heaven we will be ever learning. Ever learning for all eternity. Ever growing in our capacity to love and enjoy God and to know God and explore the wisdom of God for all eternity. I mean, I know it boggles the mind to think of it, but that is, that is right. That is true. Okay, so let's get to the transmission of sin, okay? So we talked about... Again, the origin of sin, I just think it's so important to talk about that. But then also the doctrine of original original sin. So turn to Romans chapter 5. So I think really Romans chapter 5 is, um, is really one of the most substantial or sub- substantive uh, passages that really deal with the whole uh, doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin. Uh, which is also his, uh, which is also a very popular book. It's a it's actually a very respected book, The Imputation of Adam's Sin, written by John Murray many years ago, which is an exposition of this text right here, verses especially verses twelve through eighteen. That's kind of what Murray zeroes in on. But uh, here there is no question, therefore, that sin, is, even though the original sin originates in the heart of Satan. Sin is not transmitted to us through Satan, right? Original sin does not come to us through the serpent. It comes through us through the man, Adam. It also does not come to us through the woman. It comes to us through the man, right? He, he set up Adam as what is known as our federal head. Right? Our federal head. What does the concept of federalism imply? Representation. Representation. Anything more than that? He's our representative in what way? Mankind. Yes, he represents us. The, the nature in which we receive, in which we, we receive. Yeah, it, it's 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 all it's a forensic term. In other words, it's a legal matter. He legally represents us before God. He is our legal representative before God. Okay? Um, which means that he works along the economy of God. God has set this up this way. This is the way God's world runs. It runs along federal lines. Really remarkable because why is Genesis written the way that it's written, Gigi? Why is it written that way? Why is Adam our federal head? Yeah, so God has always had an intent to have a first and a second Adam. <laughs> I, I love that because, once again, it proves the whole burden for why the TEC conference exists at our church, the Emmaus conference, because the whole volume of the book is written of him, folks. Uh, yeah. Adam is not an end to himself. Adam is a picture. He's a historical figure, but he points away from himself. God designed it this way. He designed, us, he designed for us to look at the first Adam to understand the second Adam. 
Consequently, now, we look at the second Adam in order to understand the first Adam, right? Just like Jesus represents all of his people, Adam represented all of his people. So let's, um, let's look at this here in verse 12, just a few verses here. It says, therefore, 512, uh, Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death reigned through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Um, that last phrase, because all sinned, uh, it, it would seem to suggest that all sinned in Adam. Uh, we all sinned in him. And of course, you know, original sin has been called one of the hardest doctrines in, in the Bible. You know, because of course, the, the, the Arminian tendency of man, <laughs> right? We're all born Arminian, I'm convinced of that. You know, the autonomous nature of man wants to gripe against this and say, how is that fair? Something that Adam did in some garden somewhere long ago, how, why does that affect me? Right? And uh, that's not fair. How will we answer that, that complaint? Maybe you've had it yourself. Yes, sir? Typically how I deal with it is I say, we don't, we don't actually get punished for his sin. We acquire the nature to sin, and by therefore, when we do sin, we deserve punishment. Okay. All right. Well, that's, and that's actually something that Wayne Grudem points out in his systematic theology. He says that, you know, yes, we receive endemic guilt, endemic guilt, uh, death sentence. We, we receive an endemic uh, corruption or pollution, okay? But what that leads to is the, the, the certainty that uh, we will sin. And that's why you see in the Word of God, nowhere in the Bible, anywhere, are we judged for Adam's sin. It's always that we are judged according to our deeds. Always. And uh, some have built a doctrine of infant salvation based on that understanding. John MacArthur, uh, Al Mohler, John Piper, they've built, they've constructed an elaborate argument of infant salvation precisely on that point. Uh, anyway, don't get into that right now. <laughs> I don't want to go in that direction yet, okay? But, uh, but yeah, so, and then another, you know, kind of a capstone verse. Look at verse 18. So it begins and ends with the same types of themes. Verse 18 says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. That's his death sentence. Even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. So the question that we need to ask is, is this teaching universalism? Because all and then all. So who did Adam represent? Adam represented everybody, all of mankind, right? And so the symmetry would seem to suggest that Jesus also represents all of mankind. Okay, the problem. A lot, a lot of people shaking their heads. Okay, why is that not right? Because it contradicts with Romans chapter nine. Okay, right. Versus many. Yeah, many. the many. Okay, the many. Okay, yeah, that's right. Anything else? Any other way that we can try to resolve this? Because here's the question is that what happened with Adam actually, actually resulted in the fall of mankind, right? Everybody, everybody inherited Adam's guilt, Adam's sin nature. So what happens with Christ, I would, I would say, 
actually accomplishes whatever Christ did. So if he really truly, um, you know, merited, because that's what's going on with that word there, um, one act of righteousness, that is the meritorious nature of Christ's uh, uh, active and passive obedience. What is the passive obedience of Christ? What he suffered on the cross. What is the active obedience of Christ? The life that he lived positively, obeying God's commandments. So that act of righteousness results in the justification of life to all men. And so what I say is that whatever happens here is actual. So if you stick, to use a grammatical term, to the indicative of what's going on here, meaning it's not a possibility, there's not a potential for life to come to all men, this is what's real, this is what is actual, then I would say based on that you must embrace <coughs> universalism. But we know on the basis of uh, a hermeneutical principle that you should all know and that should, you should all use, known as the analogy of the faith. What does the analogy of the faith mean? Robert? Scripture interprets scripture, so you yeah. know it cannot contradict itself. One doctrine cannot yeah. contradict itself. Yeah, that's right. So scripture proves scripture. Scripture has this analogous relationship to itself. I love it because it means scripture self-sufficient, self-contained, self-authenticating, needing no external authentication, right? It is the self-authenticating word of God. And so what I'm saying is that this cannot possibly be teaching universalism because universalism has already been ruled out. Right? Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, narrow is the way. Few will be there that find eternal life. Jesus is not contradicting Romans. And so definitely, I think what, what theologians have concluded, and I think is right, is that Adam represents his humanity and Jesus represents his humanity. So what is God doing in Christ is that he is recreating a new humanity in Christ. To use the language of Revelation 5, verses 9 through 11, he is creating a humanity comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and uh, uh, people. Did I say that already? Tribe, tongue, nation, and there's another one, right? No, every tongue, tribe, nation. Okay. Now i got to look it up. <laughs> yeah, because... And, and notice what Revelation 5 says. It's not everybody universalistically, you could use that, right? Ah, it's nation. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Four of them, right? So out of is the key word, right? He, is, he has redeemed, purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, and nation. Why can't I get that right? Tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's right. So that's what he's doing. He's recreating his new humanity in Christ. Another parallel passage to that would be First Peter, chapter, First uh, Peter chapter one. Um, no, no, excuse me. First Peter chapter two, verses uh, nine, and <coughs> nine and ten. That would be a parallel passage to that. That he is creating for himself a new people, a holy race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Isn't that amazing? 
all of those are covenant, you know, covenantal terms of Israel, which Peter is saying Jesus is creating a whole new race comprised of every tribe, tongue, and nation. I won't say it anymore. <laughs> okay, so let's see here. So we've established that he is our federal head. Um, death as a consequence of federalism. It says uh, that death uh, came to all. We know that on the basis of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse what is it? Uh, 15, verse 21 and 22. That's a very important one. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 22. Since, for, since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Again, we must understand this in terms of representing humanities. Adam represents his humanity. Christ represents his humanity or people's. Adam represents his people, Christ represents his people, or else you end in universalism, which many did. The Socinians, following the Reformation, um, taught, based on passages like this, the doctrine of universalism. Many people have, throughout the history of the church, they turn to passages just like this in order to teach that unbiblical doctrine, that unbiblical doctrine. Um, what are some, what are some other problems with universalism? It's important to understand that. There'd be no reason to have a savior. Yeah, yeah. Well, unless he saves everybody. Yeah. No point in following. What's that? No point in following after. No point in following after. He's going to save everybody. Yeah. No point in submitting to him. Okay. Well, why not? Why not submit to him? Even I mean, he's going to save everybody. Maybe that's incentive to submit to him all the more. Right. It disparages God's holiness. Disparages the holiness. Of, in what way? Well, because then it, it would say that you would have to say, if he saves everybody, you know, then, then sin abound, just let sin abound. And then God could be, if he saves everybody, then people could continue to sin. And if all these people were sinning still as the name of Christ, that would be like blasphemous. If we take the name of Christ, we're blaspheming Christ. Yeah. Whenever we continue to sin, it's it's like blasphemy. Right. But yet, if we if he just saves us anyway, then he's saying that's okay. And I mean, it's kind of like almost um like like he doesn't have a special bride, and he's calling mm. everybody his bride. Mm. What does that say? Mm. Yeah. Whenever he says that so, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, it contradicts the Bible in other places. So it reduces the Christian religion to a self-refuting. Religion. That's right. It contradicts all those passages, and the reason why this is important is because universalism is um, is is everywhere today. I mean, it's all over. I mean, I, how many times have people told me, you know, we're all children of God? Everyone. God loves everyone. I was just watching a video. Don't ask me why. I was asking. I was watching a video of a gentleman preaching outside of a Benny Hinn rally. And a woman comes out with a group of guys, and they're over there, you know, debating—not really debating, but talking, trying to confront the guy that's preaching in front of this Benny Hinn conference. Now, I'm not suggesting you go to a conference and, you know, uh, protest Benny Hinn. If you do, I mean, let it be according to your faith. But what I'm saying is that <laughs> this person, this 
you know, this lady in particular comes out and she starts saying that it doesn't matter what you believe. God loves us all. We're all God's children. Everybody the same. You know, universalism will rear its head in the weirdest places. On television, we're all children of God. God loves everybody. People apostatize on that point. Rob Bell, Love Wins. His book, Love Wins, was an argument for universalism that influenced thousands in the emergent church. I mean, so this is relevant. This is definitely relevant, and we can't allow passages like this to be used and mis misconstrued to teach universalism. Isn't that Very, uh, crossover to prosperity gospel as well? Yeah, I mean, you'll find statements like that in, in I mean, Benny Hinn is a universal, I mean, is a uh, prosperity teacher, you know what I mean? But, you know, the whole thing is if you don't care about theology, you're not going to have a critical thought about anything, you know? And it's not surprising to hear that young lady saying things like that. God loves us all. We're all God's children. Everyone's going to be fine. That's just, if that's the truth, I mean, wh why even have a missionary enterprise in the church? Why even engage in missions or evangelism? If God's going to save everybody, then we have nothing to worry about, right? If God's going to save everybody, then there's nothing to fear, ultimately. And, um, boy, I tell you what. This is so important, so important. Any other questions, comments? Um, let's see. This is why I think it's very important to understand what evangelism is. Evangelism, I, tell you, I took my Adams off here, but evangelism is all about taking people out of Adam and putting them into Christ. That's what evangelism is, taking people out of the race of Adam and putting them into the race of Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. So we inherit not just his sin, um, his sin nature, but we also inherit his, what they call his corruption, or uh, Grudem likes to talk about moral pollution, edemic pollution, which basically lends to the doctrine of total depravity, which means that man is sinful in every aspect of his humanness. Every aspect of man is shot through with edemic sin, edemic guilt, and edemic corruption or pollution. Every aspect of who we are, our mind, our will, our bodies, um, our spiritual life, our, our thought life, everything has been corrupted because of sin. And because of that, two points need to be made. Number one, because of edemic pollution and guilt, our natures uh, are completely devoid of of, of any good before God. In other words, we totally lack the capability of any spiritual good in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter what we do, right? I mean, Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord, right? Jeremiah 17, 9, our heart is desperately sick. It is evil. And who can even understand it? Who can comprehend? What he's saying is that the heart is so radically depraved, only God knows the extent of the radical depravity of man. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. Jesus, Jesus, uh, Jesus showed that he understood the radical depravity of man, right? He does an exposition of the heart, right? When he says, out of the heart proceeds murders, adulteries, drunkenness, what, you know, all of the vice lists that he mentions there. Um, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, 18, nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. 
That is in my flesh. And that's an important term. Understand that this term flesh, okay, uh, and the Greek word is uh, like this. No, 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 it's not. Sarks. The reason sarks is very important, flesh, is because uh, it can mean different things. Flesh can mean um, mankind. Nothing good dwells in mankind. Well, there's one way of saying that, but that's not what Paul meant. Right? Flesh can mean, what else can it mean? Your body. Your body, right? So flesh can uh, speak to... Uh, your human body. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. But flesh is also a theological term, a technical term for the, the, the sinful nature of man. Um, that aspect of his humanness that remains unredeemed. Right? The unredeemed aspect of man. That continues, I think that continues on even into the believer's life. We still have the old man that needs to be one day completely discarded and will not be discarded fully until he comes, right? Contrary to what perfectionist teachers teach, you cannot be fully sanctified in this world as much as we want to be, as much as we'd like to think we, you know, we would want to be that holy, you can't. John Newton ended up breaking fellowship with John Wesley precisely over this issue of perfectionism. John Wesley began teaching that man can be sinlessly perfected. And, um, and consequently, he went on to teach that if you believe in the sovereignty of God and if you believe in something like um, limited atonement, which we're going to talk about today in the sermon, that you believe that God is worse than the devil. So John was, anyway, don't get me started on that, but uh, Wayne Grudem says, apart from the work of Christ in our lives, we are like all other unbelievers who are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. See, ignorance is not a virtue in scripture. Ignorance does not equal innocence. It's never a good thing to be ignorant in the Bible. Uh, ignorance just means, speaks of a person who is devoid of God, devoid of God. And so the other thing is, is that there's nothing within us that can commend us to God and we are not able to do what is spiritually pleasing to God. One passage on this, Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God cannot please God. And there, again, flesh is the technical term for uh, moral uh, sinfulness, sinfulness of man, unredeemed man. Okay? Uh, so we can't do anything apart from God doing something first in us. And that is what has resulted from Adamic sin. Amen? Any other questions? Comments? Yes, sir? So... Would I be right kind of saying that man has a form of goodness and has a form of godliness and man can, you know, show that in his life. But the goodness that man will probably, or I guess show, is not goodness or a form of godliness that's God-glorifying. Right. It's, it's, it seems like it's good. 
But not to the glory of God. Correct. So, okay. All right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, the worst unbeliever can do good. Right. I'm sure Hitler exhibited acts of kindness at times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure he pet a dog, you know. I'm sure that he was kind to a child. I'm sure that, you know, uh, you know, a murderer who is sitting in state prison right now on death row, I'm sure he was nice to his mom at some point. I mean, look, so we don't believe in utter depravity, which means man is as sinful as humanly possible, right? But he is total, total depravity is that he is sinful in every aspect of who he is. So that does not preclude the idea that man can do acts of, that are good in the sight of all men, right? I mean, heathens can get married. And that is right in the sight of God that people be married. It's better than living in fornication. But that, that in no way commends them to God in any way. That's thus the need for Jesus, the need for the Savior. Can't justify ourselves. So I'm out of time. So let's pray and we will go, okay? Father, again, thank you for uh, giving us a, a revelation regarding something as important as sin that is all around, everywhere. Even though we live in a world that t tries to deny the very existence of sin, we're grateful that the Bible teaches us exactly what sin is, where it comes from, how it is transmitted, and what we are to do about it. Help us to fight indwelling sin in our own hearts and in our own lives, Lord, for your glory and for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.